You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Hello and welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. In today's episode, Mike Porter talks about interoperability. We touched up on several important topics, including HL7 fire standards, data privacy, data governance, and others. We also discussed the different standards of your organization that you need to consider while you're sharing the information versus meeting the compliance needs. Mike consistently provided great examples about standards of regulations versus standards of sharing. Hope you'll get very good takeaways from the show. Majority of non-federal acute care hospitals have adopted electronic health medical records, commonly known as EMHR or EHR, to get into the digitized patient record. However, as healthcare is undergoing a massive digital transformation, especially accelerated by COVID, the definition of interoperability becomes connected devices, collective exchange of consumer information, data privacy, and more. Here to give us a perspective on these topics, we have Michael Porter, CRM and Data Chief Strategist and Interoperability Expert. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Mike, can you introduce yourself and your role at Proficient? I belong to the healthcare practice, and within the healthcare practice, interoperability is a big deal. In many ways, we, we call it interoperability or healthcare integration. But regardless, the transfer of patient information or patient records from one entity to the next and those could be interoperability or pay transfer of records between organizations, but it could also be within systems within any kind of organization. The interesting thing about interoperability these days is that while most of the focus in the past has been on providers or hospitals, it's now actually begun to migrate and to become more relevant to payers or health insurers. Thank you, Mike. Interoperability has been in existence for a while in this context of health level 7, HL7. What does that mean? I mean, I've seen these things called four levels of interoperability, for example. This has been in existence for, I assume, over two decades. So what, what, what does this mean? Why is it important now? Why is it being the talk of the town? Really what's been focused on and, and what's been the push has been the fact that the CMS has created what they call the CMS final rule. And they are basically regulating or mandating that anyone that interacts with the government interact with them in a way that uses key standards. And as you mentioned, a lot of these key standards have existed for a while. HL7 in, in its first couple of incarnations was just a way to, from a batch mode, transfer information. Again, specifically HL7 as in patient record, and that those records can be quite large. There's lots of different ways in which you can slice and dice a patient, their encounters, their their procedures, conditions, et cetera, that what happens when you interact with them. And that's it also includes the demographic information. But over time, from a transfer of information or an integration perspective, people recognize that you don't just just transfer it in batch mode. You transfer it in an API, and and then then we had a new record type of that that uh, supported SOAP, and and of course SOAP these days is a little hard to use. That's when they came out and said, listen, there's a better way of doing it. And then its fourth iteration, Fire F H I R. That, that interoperability record is really meant to be a RESTful interface that allows you to very quickly and very easily, even for relative neophytes, be able to call and get at, at that information. 
Interesting. Now, I've read some articles about interoperability, and they call these four levels of interoperability, right? Foundational, structural, semantic, and organizational. Now, each one of these guys have a set of considerations, if you will. You know, if you're okay, I'd like to kind of peel that layer of onion a little bit and, and ask you some questions related to those levels. Mm -hmm. So let's let's start with foundational. This is where I think you touched up a little bit on this, the batch mode of transferring patient records from the point of origination, an EMR system, if you will, to another system. So what are some of the considerations, Mike, that you would think about for a foundational setup? If you think about, we'll call it the traditional elements, you know, and, and you started off this conversation by mentioning electronic medical records. The transfer of, of medical records in batch mode means that you're trying to transfer more, in many cases, more than one record. And when you're using the HL7 standard, especially at Proficient, we've used the, the original HL7 batch mode type standard, transfer it to a file, to transfer large amounts of patient records. And when you think about population health, when you're thinking about data, data and insights, when you want to be able to take information from one EMR, and a lot of the systems that we work with, they're large. They might have multiple instances of, of the EMR. And now you've got multiple patient records in different areas. And when you've got those patient records in different areas, you might want to push them into one location to be able to do patient matching, to be able to do a, a lot of interesting things to, to understand that patient record. Uh, the next thing that you want to think about is the fact that you want to be able to transfer the records. Things like HIPAA, the, especially the Accountable Care Act, before the CMS final rule this year, it was all about allowing people to have access to that, that data, that information. And that's where health information exchanges, HIEs, came into play. So that informational is, is how do I get large numbers of, uh, of records from one place to the next, whether it's be, be at a pure clinical setting or be, be it for reporting and other insights. I see. So, so for our listeners here, HIE is is uh, was born out of the necessity of transferring complex patient records, HL7 records, if you will, from one system to another, and and make it more interoperable. So let's move to the next level then. So you've now set up the systematic components. Now you're talking about structures. You mentioned uh, in your previous comment that when you have multiple EMRs and each one of these guys have same patient record, there needs to be consistency of the patient record. Arvin Morali needs to be the same across the board. And hospital XYZ need to look at me as one patient, not as multiple patients. So what do you do structurally to build that consistency of a patient record? Well, that's the whole purpose of the HL7 standard, if you think about it, right? That's when, that's when they say, hey, in the HL7 standard, this is the demographic information. This is where we're going to have information for procedures or conditions. Um, this is the information we're going to have for encounters and, uh, and other things. In other words, the whole idea of the HL7 standard and what they've been using before you know, in, in the past is, is to at least set a baseline. And it's not a perfect baseline. If anyone ever looks at a, re at a record, especially at things like lab results, you realize that there's a lot of stuffing going on into the into that record where unstructured information makes it a messy record. But at the very least, based on certain codes, based on the, on the key of demographic information, based on the fact that you can say, this is their encounter, this is their procedure, these are the conditions that they have, you can at least start to communicate in a little better fashion. Mm, you're, you're setting me up nicely for that next level. So go, going down that path, let's talk about the level three, which is the semantic layer, right? If you've seen the trend in the industry, I'm seeing this pattern called common data model. You mentioned the lab data, the encounter data, the patient data, all of these 
regardless of the details, the definitions should still be consistent across the healthcare, right? Across the industry. So is this where the semantic layer kind of agnosticizes the information and creates consistency of definition? It's where it tries to do that, is, is what I would say. The semantic layer is understood by everyone. The, the reality is, as you begin to do that, and Arvind, and you and I have had a couple of different projects that are that are kind of interoperability light. In other words, core interoperability is about these, these core systems that we're talking about, even though as we get into payers, all of a sudden there's a new host of systems. But the use of, of patient information, if you're trying to create engagement models, now all of a sudden you're talking about customer relationship management or CRM systems and whatnot. The use of that is a starting point, but the understanding that semantically that you talk about, there still needs to be a lot of discussion in terms of what does this really mean and what are we trying to do? And to the point where it, be, where it begins to fail, and you know, it's not like HL7 is, is complete, although it's, it's very, very complete, especially if you compare it to what's in the fire standard. And fire standard is like almost like a subset in some ways. Then you can get a long ways, but you still have to discuss what, does the, what do certain key fields. And that's it's not going to be patient address. Everyone probably understands patient address, but as you get into the deep esoterica of that, then you have to have some discussions. Yeah. What is the definition of an encounter, for example, right? Two different business units within the same organization, as we've seen, has different definitions, even for something like encounter, which goes to my kind of next level, right? The organizational level. So Mike, what are the impacts of such a powerful data set at a governance level, at a legal level, at a policy level? How does one take this into consideration and put some data governance around this very important data asset? When you think about the data governance, and it, it's, it's interesting because in a healthcare organization, you've got the people trying to do data governance. Let's define the data. And then there's, a, there's the people trying to make sure that that data is never lost. Um, there's the security around the data. And then there's, a, there's the legal people that define, well, based on those rules that have come back from, from the government in terms of what we can and cannot share and with whom and under what circumstances. Uh, now you have to have a legal version of what's shareable and what's not. And when you talk about that data governance, if you're looking at an outcome, the outcome is, is that because we have a shared understanding of this, I can begin to do a lot of interesting things. And in, in the typical fashion, you know, I mentioned population health, the people who are trying to gain insights on this can at least start with a baseline of this baseline understanding helps us to do comparisons across large, large data sets and to do an apples to apples type comparison. But because we also understand it, this data and we're beginning to do more engagement and, and then the engagement might be a simple thing like, I know you have an appointment and let me send you a reminder. Or it might be, I know that, that I still have to follow the rules of HIPAA, but we know that this person, based on certain demographic information, based on certain information related to what treatments they've had in the past uh, or, or what conditions or diseases they may have, they may need you know, certain screenings or they may need further information on things that might happen to them. In other words, you want to engage them, but in a HIPAA compliant fashion by not saying, I know you have, but now all of a sudden, because you have a shared understanding of what that governance is, you can begin to use that shared understanding to say, here's what's allowed and here's how we say that. And no one, no one's trying, going to make a mistake based on what they're sharing because you all understand what this is and what the rules are. Yeah, and, and Mike, what is so amazing about this, I'm actually working with another hospital as we speak. The, the level four of this, which is the organizational constraint, seems to be the, the, the longest pole in the tent, if you will. There, there is a, a university-based health system where the university itself is managing the patient records. Who holds that data holds the power. And basically, we've been months at this trying to make sure that the hospital system has access to the data 
which means they can run analytics, they can run, you know, CRM, if you will. And that seems to be a big deal. So, I mean, now since we've gone through these four levels, the foundational, the structural, semantic, organizational, of course, none of the health systems are going to be new to HL7. As we deep dive into this fire standards heads down, would you think that the organizational level would be the most complex to solve versus the other three might be fairly easier? What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's kind of funny. We talk about th- these four levels and, and organizational is is a harder nut to crack. But ultimately, once you define the rules of how you can share that information and with whom you can share that information and who owns the data or not, now, ultimately, by the way, the, the, as CMS likes to think of it, the, the patient owns the data and, and you should never forget that. And that's what the, the CMS final rule really is about is, is, is the continual transition um, for that. Then you're you're able to get to the point. If you think about it from an outcome perspective, then you're able to get to the point where you're just you're just trying to do right by the patient. And if the organization is aligned by aligned to that, then and you've got the organizational rules, then it doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter if it's the people whose job it is to, to deal with interoperability and who are very focused on data security and everything like that within that traditional interoperability world inside of a, of a hospital. Or if it's people who now have to deal with patient records outside of that world, which is becoming more and more frequent, which also pushes more changes where a lot of the older technologies didn't, didn't quite fit. So it's interesting that organizational is important, uh, but only so much as you're, you're focused on that, that end outcome. Mm. And FHIR seems to be a more simpler standard as it compares to HL7. To your point, how does an organization prepare for this new CMS fire standard? And the answer to that's twofold. Oddly enough, if you think about it, if you're a if, if you're a hospital, if you're a provider, they look at it and they say, "Great, we everyone wants to use the fire standard." And, and ultimately, fire is really it, it's the HL7 fire standard, by the way. And so it's not like it's a completely new something separate. It's an ongoing iteration. It's an easier element, but it's also in many cases a subset. And that's because between the many, many different versions, they released the V4 and doubtless there's going to be a V5 somewhere that it was, it was a much simpler set, subset of data which, with, with which they can share. And so that means that already hospitals especially have begun to use Fire, but now have begun to create additional RESTful APIs to catch the the other information that they want to share, and they're they're using Fire for more than just the purposes of that that were mandated by by the C, by CMS. CMS wants to use Fire to be able to share that information and make it more patient centric. As in, share the information back to the patient itself, Mike. Back to the patient, or back to an organization that the patient gives permission to. Um, and you think think about what uh, you know Microsoft and others created health faults where they tried to centralize your own your own patient um, record. That was the beginning of it. It didn't work out all that well. It's now gone by the wayside along with three other three or four other attempts for it. But what they want to do is because they've made that more accessible and you know operating under the rules of HIPAA, that means as soon as someone's given permission, now you can begin to do interesting things. And because you've made that that patient information more accessible, you can do more with it. And that's really what where, where CMS is trying to go. Now, once you have a standard, right, once you said HL7 is the standard, or once you say FHIR is the standard, and it's a relatively easy to use, easy to call um, standard, then you can begin to transfer that information between systems. And the creation of an API isn't necessarily going to be from, from a patient-centric where the patient's in the middle and gives permission, but 
from one system to the next, both of which will, will still operate by the rules of HIPAA, but they're beginning to extend it beyond. And that's, that's kind of an interesting approach from a provider standpoint. Now, payers are a different world. If you think about it, payers haven't had to share much information at all, right? And, and in many ways, the data that they have is a little bit different. Payers don't see the, the patient record. They see a small set of it related mostly to a claim. And so claims information is still patient information. It's still the patient record, so to say, from, from a member standpoint. But payers insure more than just your typical health insurance. Don't forget about dental. Don't forget about vision. There's a whole variety of systems that can be part of the patient record, so to say. Now, for the first time, they're being mandated to share that. And they're being mandated to share that in a variety of different ways. CMS has basically said they have to provide a payer API. They have to provide a provider API. In other words, provider search, for example. They have to be able to allow patients to request that their records be transferred from one payer to the next. In other words, if you leave one of the big, one of the big blues and move over to Aetna or Cigna or United, you name any of these, these healthcare insurers, as of July 1st, they're, they're, they're supposed to be allowed to transfer their information. So there's a lot of things going on there that payers have never had to do. And, and if you think about it, whereas providers have spent a lot of time trying to get to a clean set of records for providers, and an EMR can help provide that, but it's not the end-all be-all, payers in many cases still have the records all over the place. And so they'll have claims records in the claim system. They'll have other records like dental and the dental system, the vision and the vision system, and trying to pull them all together becomes a, a, a fun thing for them. But ultimately, for using Fire, they'll be able to make all of that accessible. Now, there's a lot of fun that, that we're already diving into in terms of how to make that accessible in a scalable and in a low latency type fashion. This almost sounds to me like a retailification of the healthcare industry. I mean, I, I, I used to travel back in the before the pandemic days, and you know, I use American Express as a part of my credit card. And they would be so smart to figure out that if I'm traveling Southwest one day, American Airlines another day, they would send me an email saying, hey, are you okay? You seem to be changing your the way you travel from one to another. What is your experience? I mean, they will send me a survey asking, what is my experience with Southwest versus American so that they can figure out how they can help me? You talked a little bit about the loyalty and the marketing. And let's say patient A moves from Cigna to Blue Cross Blue Shield. You have the ability to quote unquote transfer these. But at the same time, what are they going to do what what if i'm always going to a hospital a to take care of myself and the hospital a notices that you know i'm moving from this one payer to another payer what would they do with that kind of information how would they look at me as a as an entity doing business with them it's it's very interesting i mean what are your thoughts on that are are they going through this retailification process there's been a general trend which you know proficient has been talking about for at least six or seven or eight years called you know healthcare consumerization and that continues um, obviously within the bounds of regulation and it's a highly regulated industry um, but if you if you go and look at some of the interviews that the CTO of CMS has given the terms they use are very retail oriented they're very oriented on I want to be able to provide opportunity which heretofore has not been available because of the siloed nature of these records. And we want to be able to do more with them. Uh, we want to be able to be more predictive, for example. We want to be able to, to allow more control. We want to allow, allow patients themselves to have more insight into their healthcare. And you do it by being able to share this information. So there's absolutely consumerization. But in, it, the weird thing is, in this case, consumerization is almost being mandated. Um, but it's being mandated because of the, of the siloed effect and because they need to 
you know, you've got two different rules if you think about it. There is HIPAA, which says if you ever share this information incorrectly, we will levy so many different types of fines that we will that, that it could influence the the viability of your organization. And then you have the Accountable Care Act and you have the, the CMS final rule that says you need to share this information. Um, and, and really what they're saying is, is they're they're saying you need to share it. Um, and then the, then the CMS final rule. And now we're going to give you the tools whereby you can share it and you can share it well without being in danger of, of, of being levied these fines. And that's another key element of this. We, we've talked a lot about fire, for example, but there's other interoperability standards. There's Smart IG, OAuth 2, OpenID Connect, all of which are key elements of doing it, being able to do this, do this type of sharing, but it's sharing in a secure fashion. Yeah, and I think you, you said it perfectly, basically because the healthcare organizations are very conservative and highly regulated, it, it only makes sense for a governing body like a CMS to mandate this, this fire standards going forward, because then basically you are now meeting the regulatory requirements while you're making the organization more quote-unquote patient-centric, or to, to use your words, healthcare consumerization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that you mentioned before, the, there's implications outside of that world the, the the traditional interoperability world is i will share a patient record in a secure fashion with another trusted entity um, and that trusted entity in the past wasn't necessarily the patient and now as we talk about this um and, and it's it's one reason why we we tend to talk about it not as interoperability because interoperability has been that previous definition then we use healthcare integration because now what happens when you call into a call center and you want to make an appointment? The call center might have a CRM or other tool. You might want to gain access to a host of information, some of which is in the EMR, some of which may not be in the EMR. And so they, they need access to all of this and you need to be able to give them that access and all that, that key and, and critical and, and private information pretty quickly. If you, again, as I mentioned before, from a marketing perspective, and I say marketing very loosely because you know, marketing is marketing of people who aren't your aren't your aren't yet yet your your patients, and it could also be marketing in terms of let me tell you about your appointment, let me give you information without revealing that we know something because it's you know, there, but helping to understand um, how to how to better deal with your condition. There's a lot of communication and engagement which can actually help with the whole patient journey and and, and the outcomes that you're trying to find. And those aren't necessarily traditional interoperability, but they're using that same data set and these types of of standards are extremely relevant in that world. You talked about a lot of opportunities to improve patient care. Let's let's talk about the the other side of it, which is data privacy. What does this do, especially with consents, right? I mean, I'm used to working in both healthcare and retail, and there's a significant difference between me or, or, or a mobile application popping up a screen that says, do you agree that we'll share your information with other third parties? When a retail asks me this question, it is a very different context versus when a hospital asks me this question. I, I, I don't think I've been ever asked that question, but w- what do you think are the data privacy constraints, issues, concerns that you see with this interoperability standard? With the exception of some of the recent rules, and if you think about it, you know, healthcare has some very specific standards that have been around for a long time, HIPAA. In, in Europe, they, they introduced from a retail or any kind of personal information, the, the GDPR. California all, all, you know, obviously came up with their own standard. Um, and I think other states, and maybe even though at some point in time, there'll be a national standard. But you're right. Retail, un- until it's constrained, operates under the assumption that they can share your information with whomever they please. As a matter of fact, you've heard the you've heard the the adage: if 
you don't know who's who's paying for your service because the service is free to you, then you are probably the thing they're selling. And that's what they operate under. You know, the likes of Google operate under that every single day and make billions of dollars off of it. That is not allowed in the healthcare world. The assumption of privacy is, is that it will not be shared, period. You know, and you think about it, you, you probably see every now and again where someone accesses a, accesses a healthcare record because a celebrity was having a baby inside of a hospital. And next thing you know, they find out about it because they have audit controls over it and that person's been fired. So the healthcare world and the teams, security, legal and, and compliance and otherwise are very, very focused on that. And that means that they take it from a, a different stand, standpoint. And sometimes it's good for the patient, but there's a constant push in terms of what is allowed. You know, I've had conversations where one organization that's very innovative and tries to engage with their patients, consumers, et cetera, and sends out quite a large number of emails, texts, et cetera, and they've figured it out. And then you go to another organization who doesn't do anything at all. And the first thing they say is we are not allowed because of HIPAA. Well, obviously there's an ongoing relevant, you know, there's an ongoing debate because they both can't be right. The reality is, is that the, the engagement is allowed um, and legal and compliance can't allow it. They just need to set their own terms to make sure that they don't, they don't defeat the purpose of HIPAA in the first place. But do you see a middle ground there, Mike? I mean, basically, on one side, you've got the, the security and the legal guy saying, no, we cannot share, period. On the other side, you've got the quote unquote marketing guys in an organization saying, well, we need to use this data as appropriate. And, and of course, meeting all the compliance standards. Do you see somewhere in the middle there as you're going through the interoperability standards? You know, it's interesting because the interoperability stand, you know, if you think about it, there's, there's the standards of regulation and there's the standards of sharing. Um, an interoperability standard by and of itself is just a standard that says, here's how I'm going to share a patient, you know, patient, a patient record. But then, then the, the allowance, the way, who you're allowed to share that with is under the purview of compliance, legal, et cetera. And so you don't necessarily need to confuse the two. One is one makes it easy to share. And the other is the rules by which you're going to make it shareable to another, another team. And you know, to, to answer your question another way, is there a middle ground? Yeah, there is. And, and let me give you an, an example. And this is, this is under the Accountable Care Act, but not necessarily sharing for marketing, but actually trying to make it easier for a patient to sign up for their patient portal. We were working with a very well-known healthcare firm to create their patient portal. They run across numerous states, and that meant numerous EMRs, and that meant having to pull information from a variety of places. And to do sign up in, in the past meant that you had to go to an office and sign a lot of, of paperwork. And once that paperwork was signed, then you could get access to it. And keep in mind, HIPAA rules basically say, I can't see the healthcare information for my wife or my daughter who's over the age of, depending on which state, 13, 16, 18, I'm probably not 18, by the way, probably closer to 13, um, unless they've given me explicit consent. And so now you have to worry about being able to identify them. And we had devised using some very innovative tools from RSA and others to be able to correctly identify that this was the person that's, who, they, who they said they were and not, for example, the husband. Um, and once we identify that with things like a unique identifier from the patient, um, from the last patient interaction they had and some other things, we we're going to do that. We had to work with compliance and ultimately with legal over the space of about nine months to be able to use these online tools to do that type of verification, to get past the point where they were required to go in, show their ID, sign their life away, and then finally be given a login. 
Ultimately, legal said it was possible. We satisfied the legal requirements as, as they had defined what, what the law, law had said and also trying to meet what accountable care says because those are two, they're not conflicting, but one says don't share and one says you must share. And now we're getting to the how do I share you know, component, which is where CMS final rule and other pieces come into play. But it's a journey, so to say. And there is a middle ground, but the middle ground is usually hard fought in all organizations. No, you've articulated it very well, that, that middle ground between standards of regulation and standards of sharing. I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Now, what, what happens to the quality of data? Going back to this example that you talked about, if you're in the process of digitizing these, creating a user ID for a portal, what's going to happen to the quality? How do I know that you are who you are? How do I monitor you? And you now have access after going through those quality standards to say your son or daughter's information who are 13, 16, 18, whatever the, the age limit is. It's interesting when you talk about monitoring um, because do you, do you monitor it from a data governance perspective, which you know, in my world, I'm more worried about sharing and more worried about, um, about passing the information and, and, and less about your world, which is data governance. But when, when you talk about it, what you're saying is, is now that I trust you, in other words, you, you have legal access to this record, um, I'm going to give you, you, know, you access to that. Now, it's interesting when you say quality because the record itself doesn't change just because you've given access to it. But the record itself is, from a consumerization standpoint, still needs multiple iterations. And, and, and let me give you an example. I mentioned before, when we were working on a, with the patient record for a patient portal, the first time we ever looked at lab data, it was a disaster because there's so many different types of labs and they gave you the raw data, which technically was right. The first time we ever looked at, and these aren't necessarily shareable in a patient portal record, but if you're trying to gain in insights and information, the notes, which are kind of a catch-all for any type, type of encounter that a doctor has, the notes are a whole bunch of unstructured data that no one understands, um, except of course, for the physician that actually made that note. And, and if just sharing that information doesn't necessarily mean that it's in a perfect and pristine state. And this may be going off in a different route that you were trying to head that, but what that means is, is that there's, there's opportunity, opportunity in the sharing of that to apply additional iterations of, of, of data processing. And this is where artificial intelligence, machine language, all, all of the things that are incumbent upon those types of technologies to be able to go and look at that and be able to provide further insight into that. And now all of a sudden, because you're doing this sharing or you shared the record with whoever you want to, um, even in other commercial entity, now you can be able to use that information, structured or unstructured, to be able to do interesting things. And it's still trusted because you're following the right, the right patterns, but also you're using technology to get at certain areas that, that, frankly, no EMR is going to be perfect with. Because humans don't create perfectly structured information. We, we do other things. And, and if you talk to a doctor, their, their interest isn't necessarily in spending 15 hours of creating the perfect structured medical record. Their interest is in treating you and then moving forward. And the question then becomes is how can we use technology to ensure that the data is actually, will actually provide an insight for the next doctor? Yeah. And I would assume quality is so important because, I mean, you, you mentioned two situations, right? One is a literal life and death. Basically, there are two immutable records that are sitting somewhere in the organization. And now you've got several sets of encounters for one record and the other one is associated with another set of encounters. When you're taking care of a patient, you need to understand what that patient's background is. And it's critical for you to monitor the quality of data, right? Incoming data governance, to your point. Then the second set of it is when you especially build 
for lack of a better word, a hierarchy around this patient or around this person who's signing up as a caregiver. Because now you have to make sure that he or she is the primary and then they have a, a team or, or a family around them, right? So it's very important for us to identify the quality of that information as well, because that goes into your privacy side of the world. That's where I was going with the quality. I know it's too big a statement to boil it down to specific best practices, if you will. It is. And, and you know, to, to parse that even further, I mean, one of the reasons why you sign it's a yearly type of a thing. It seems like every t- every single time you go into a dentist or or a doctor, or whoever, and anyone has applies to HIPAA, they have to sign. And really, what you're saying is, I give you access to my medical record. That's what you're saying. And I give people who need it for the right purposes access to my medical record. Um, but the second you've done that, now all of a sudden, a team of doctors um, can have access to that. And to your point. Hospitals spend a lot of time making sure that everything goes together. And if a hospital has multiple systems or or maybe may may across multiple states or whatever the case may be, you need to spend a lot of time ensuring that the right record is being seen. If your son or daughter breaks their leg in California, but your record happens to be in Tennessee, but you went to the the same hospital system, then perfect. They've got that shared information. And they should be able to find that. Their, their patient matching algorithms, when done correctly, actually are very powerful in terms of finding that. Now you have a full view of that record, but only it's only a full view of that record for that hospital. And you know that gets back to the sharing of information via HIEs or ultimately with the patient themselves. There, there's a lot we can go in here, but uh, I, I'm afraid that that's all the time we got. So, Mike, as a closing note, what advice would you have to give our listeners, especially executives who are going down this interoperability path? What opportunities do they have? What, what do they need to think about from a compliance quality perspective? Help us summarize that. Let me start with one technical. This, this is for the CIO, right? Especially the CIO of, of a payer. Meeting the interoperability standards, the CMS final rule, for example, isn't a matter of standing up a separate server that, that now supports Fire and, and to, to share that information. That, that almost defeats the purpose because you created yet another silo. Um, really, it's take a look at it. And if possible, I know there's a time constraint. You want to spend the time necessary to create a holistic approach. How do I share all of this data and not just with the patient, but between each other? How do I cut down those silos in the first place? And how do I work with the master data management parts of, of your organization, the data governance parts of your organization, et cetera, so that I, I have the data in one place trusted and can be shared with whoever has the right to it, including the patient, using the correct standards. So that's the, the first piece. And the second piece is, as an executive, I mentioned it before, don't be afraid of the innovative uses of this data. Follow the rules, but the rules and laws still give you a fair amount of leeway especially when a patient has given explicit consent to a patient or member or otherwise. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of innovative things that you can do beyond the traditional, say, population health and, and other things where you're trying to measure how good of a job they are as an organization. Just be open to that because there's a lot of people that can make use of this data to create better outcomes. Mike, thank you so much. This has been a very uh, enlightening conversation. Interoperability is going to be a key topic for health consumers and physicians alike, especially to collectively form a better healthcare in the United States. And, and I'm looking forward for great things from Proficient in the healthcare interoperability. Thank you for joining us. You bet. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. 
You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.